Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Now, everyone has experienced the way deadlines can act as a double-edged sword. On the one hand, they force us to get stuff done, but on the other, they often push us to wait until the last minute to get to work, so we do that work in a poorly executed slapdash rush. Scientists call that latter dynamic the deadline effect, and my guest today has taken a field-tested dive in how to manage it so that you can get the advantages of deadlines without suffering from their downsides. His name is Christopher Cox, and he's the author of The Deadline Effect, How to Work Like It's the Last Minute Before the Last Minute. We begin our conversation with how Chris's experience as a magazine editor got him interested in deadlines and what studies have shown as to both their benefits and their pitfalls. Chris then unpacks ways to harness the former towards greater productivity in both your personal and professional life, including creating interim checkpoints, knowing how to set reasonable due dates, planning right to left rather than left to right, and using what he calls soft opens with teeth. Along the way, Chris explains these principles using a bunch of real-world case studies, from the system a chef uses to open multiple Michelin three-star restaurants, to how the Telluride Ski Resort gets ready to open for the season. And we end our conversation with what you can start doing today to take advantage of the power of deadlines in your own life. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash deadline. All right, Chris Cox, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So you got a book out called The Deadline Effect, How to Work Like It's the Last Minute Before the Last Minute. What got you thinking about the power of deadlines? I mean, it really started with the career that I had for many years before I started writing this book, which was in the magazine business. And magazines run on deadlines and always have. And there's actually one particular problem that I was trying to figure out while I worked at a couple of different magazines that that motivated me. And the question I had is, why is it that every magazine I've ever worked at, we never miss a deadline? Like we always, we've never missed a month if it's a monthly magazine. We never miss a week if it's a weekly magazine. How can we, that these organizations be so consistent, even though, you know, they have the same problems as any other workplace? You know, they're lazy people, they're confused people, they're people who are you know, overburdened. And yet we, we consistently meet the monthly deadlines. And so that sort of kicked me off. That, that got me looking into it and trying to look into some of the psychology and the social science behind deadlines. And eventually they, you know, that, that led me to write this book. Yeah, there's a surprising amount of research about deadlines. We're going to talk about some of that today. But let's talk about the word itself, deadline. It's pretty kind of a dark word. Where did it come from? And how did we make it uh, be the thing that means like, this is the due date. It's basically a due date, but we say deadline. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty uh pretty gruesome sounding word and it it has a I mean the origin is actually related to death. We think that the word originated during the Civil War when prisoners of war in the stockade there was a deadline surrounding you know the prison and if a prisoner crossed that line they'd be shot dead and that was the deadline. And it sort of traveled its way over to the newspaper business and a similar line on a printed page was called the deadline. And if you were, pr- tried to print something outside that line, it wouldn't show up on the paper. So that's the line beyond which any text would, you know, would die metaphorically. So you couldn't put words there. And then because it was already in the newspaper business, it sort of morphed one more time to mean the time that you would have to file a story, the time you'd have to print a story. And then, it, you know, it got adopted beyond that into the wider world so that we all think of due dates as deadlines now. Interesting. So let's talk about in general, like the research about the benefits of having a deadline. What what do we know? And then we maybe drill into the, the specifics as we go on in this conversation. 
Sure. Yeah. I mean, the first thing to say is simply that deadlines are remarkably effective. We may dread them. You may think that, oh, I always blow my deadlines. But actually, when you dig into the social science and, and experimental evidence and, and even real world evidence, they work. You know, they don't always work perfectly and there's ways to tailor them to make them work better. But, you know, the first thing you should do is just embrace the power of the deadline. I often say like the very worst deadline you can set for yourself is as soon as possible. In fact, you should set a concrete deadline, maybe down to a specific time for any project that you have. And I mean, just to name like one quick and very simple experiment, some researchers had their students fill out a very long questionnaire. And it was a, you know, not a huge task, but it, it took a little bit of time to fill out this questionnaire. And if they finished it, they would, each student would get $5. And one, one group was given no deadline and the other group was given, I believe, three weeks to finish it. And the group that had the deadline was two and a half times more likely to finish the questionnaire and two and a half times more likely to get $5 from, from doing that. So, you know, very, very simple, but just, you know, a, a little bit of experimental evidence there that like, yeah, these things work. Like, you know, we should, we should learn if they work so well, we need to learn how to use them effectively. We also highlight an example of deadlines being effective and get, helping us get things done with the U.S. Census. So I mm-hmm. think all of, we just did that, right? So we got, you get that form <laughs> in the mail and there's sort of like a deadline, but it's like way, way far away. And what ends up happening is it gets in your junk mail pile or like my bill pile and you never do it. And so the government has to hire people to go door to door and do the census. And that just costs a lot of money. And so there's this person at the census who's like, maybe we can manipulate some deadlines here to get people to do these things sooner so we don't have to go out knocking on their door. Can you tell us about about that experiment? Yeah. So this sort of feeds into my overall concept of deadlines, which is, you know, first they're effective and second that you can manipulate them. You can, you can sort of tweak them to be more effective. And so that experiment was done by a census worker. And basically, you know, everyone has gotten the postal questionnaire from the census. And if you fill that out, it's a lot cheaper for the government than it is if they have to send someone to your door to basically conduct the census face-to-face. And so they want to get as many people as possible to fill out that form. But like you said, it ends up on the junk pile. People ignore it. It gets lost, whatever. Uh, or the people think they just have more time to do it and then don't do it. The census deadline passes. So this experiment by the census worker, her name was Elizabeth Martin, was, was again, very simple. She just changed the deadline to be a week earlier for one group. So two sets of census forms went out. One people had a week less to finish it. And the like somewhat counterintuitive result was that the people who got it, who had less time to finish it, were more likely to send it back. So the shorter deadline actually motivated people to get it done. And they also found that the quality of the census, like the how many questions they answered, how thorough they were, improved as well. Okay, so I think we all understand that deadlines can be useful. We've probably all experienced our own lives, whether we were in school or at work. Are there downsides to deadlines? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the the name of the book is The Deadline Effect. And the deadline effect itself is a social science concept. And it's a negative thing. When you know, economists talk about the deadline effect, what they mean is our tendency to delay the work to the last minute. So it often comes up in negotiations, like between a union or in a corporation, for example. Like those deals usually get struck you know, as the clock ticks down to zero and there's a way in which the deadline itself incentivizes people to, to delay their work. And 
what I try to argue in the book is like, well, what if we took the power of the deadline effect? You know, the, the deal gets done, you know, the deal is reached on the courthouse steps. But what if we, what if we took that power, but manipulated it so that people could get things done earlier or more effectively or have more time to revise more, all the things you want rather than getting things done at the last minute. And so if you're prey to the, to the deadline effect, the end result ends up usually being worse for all parties than it is if you've like deliberately done your work productively all the way leading up to the deadline. So again, the book is about how to avoid that scenario. Gotcha. And I think we've all experienced that too. I mean, if you were in college and you waited till the night before to write your term paper, well, it's probably a crappier <laughs> term paper than if you'd started weeks before. Yeah, no, it's not going to be as good. You're going to have typos. You're going to have errors. It's going to be not as carefully thought out as it would be if you had worked more deliberately toward that deadline. Absolutely. And as part of this book, I had to study a little bit of the psychology of procrastination. And one thing that I I read was 20% of of adults are are considered chronic procrastinators. That means that they procrastinate on basically every project. But that number jumps up to 50% when you're in college. So we're particularly bad at regulating ourselves when it comes to, to deadlines when we're in college. All right. So as you said, in your book, you're trying to figure out how to get the benefits of the deadline, having that hard due date that can be motivating to get something done while mitigating the downside. So you're not getting that deadline effect where you just get crappy results because you're trying to rush to hit the deadline. So you start off the book with a case study from this chef named, I'm going to get his name right, is Jean-Georges <laughs> Von Richten. Von Richten? Pretty close. Yeah. Uh, Jean-Georges Von Richten. Yeah. His staff calls him JG, which JG. keeps things simple. All right. Yeah. I'm going to call him JG. There you go. So uh, JG, he's been able to figure out how to use deadlines to open up multiple three-star Michelin restaurants, which is, for those who don't understand, like it's hard just to get one restaurant to be a three-star Michelin restaurant. This guy's done multiple. What's the system of deadlines that he's developed to allow him to do this without fail? Yeah, he's got, I believe, 40, maybe it's more. I mean, <laughs> 40 restaurants around the world. It was funny when I wrote this chapter, I had to keep updating that number because he kept opening up new restaurants. But yeah, these are high quality restaurants, gourmet dining. They get all the awards. And, you know, that's a very difficult thing to do. Opening a restaurant is a very complicated process, but he's got a system and it works for him. And one of the most important things he does is setting interim deadlines along the way to opening a restaurant. So for the case study that I did, you know, I, I embedded with his organization and reported on when he opened up two restaurants back to back, literally on a Tuesday and a Wednesday, and how he pulled that off. And the thing that I saw that was most important to both getting it done on time and getting it done at a high level of quality were these interim deadlines. And in the restaurant world and with John George, what that meant was he had what he called mock services. You know, other restaurants do this too, but he did it very methodically. Every single night, starting Two months before the you know proposed opening date, he would start basically trying to run the restaurant as if it was already open. And at first, that meant that he would serve meals to the staff or you know the chefs and the staff that was there would serve it to the rest of the staff. And then they would start dragging in more people, so people from his larger organization. Then eventually, they would get you know, the construction companies executives to come in and, and dine. And each of those served as a little interim deadline on the way to that real actual opening date. And they got to improve the quality of the dining experience every time. And 
they would tweak and tweak and tweak and learn something from each deadline along the way. And it meant that when opening day arrived, it wasn't this frenzied rush. It was like, oh, this is just another night in this restaurant that's already kind of been operating for, for a couple of months now. Okay, so I, I guess the, the the takeaway from there on how to use deadlines with while mitigating the deadline effect is have multiple deadlines, not just a single deadline, but multiple. Yeah, you know, these interim deadlines, these sort of like checkpoints along the way are very effective. And there was an experiment done by uh, Dan Ariely, who wrote the book Predictably Irrational, who talks a lot about these sort of things, like how to sort of work with our built-in biases. So he did an experiment wherein he had his students, I'm trying to remember exactly how it worked. He had three uh, groups of students and they all had to turn in three term papers during a class. And one group was given no deadline. So they could basically turn in all three papers on the last day of class. The other was told to submit them at equal intervals throughout the semester. So, you know, one, one third of the way through one, two thirds of the way through and one at the very end. And the other got to choose, like they could either space them out or they could just put them all in the last day. And then he graded all the papers and found something that might not surprise you, which is that the people with evenly spaced deadlines did the best. The people who waited to the last day of class to turn in all three papers did the worst. But another interesting finding was that those that got to choose their own deadline, if they chose evenly spaced deadlines, did as well as the people with the mandatory ones. All right, multiple deadlines, uh, you're going to get a better product and yeah, you're just going to get a better product and you're going to be less stressed about it. But here's the tricky part. I think we've probably, if you went to college, you probably had some study skills class where they told you, you guys set multiple deadlines for your term paper. You know that logically, but and you say, okay, I'm going to implement this. So you start planning things out. Like, okay, I'm going to get my final papers due here. I'm going to do a deadline here and then another deadline here. But then you start working on the thing and you're like, man, this is going to take, this is taking longer than I thought it was going to take. Basically, we discover we're really bad at planning. Mm-hmm. So why are we so bad at planning? And then how can you avoid setting deadlines you can't meet? Yeah, we're bad at planning. I mean, I think it's just a, it's an, another one of those built-in biases that humans have. There's a name for it. It's called the planning fallacy. It is a product of actually our, our optimism. Like we always think that we're going to get things done faster and for lower cost than, than we actually get them done. The classic example of the planning fallacy is the Sydney Opera House, which when it was first designed, they had a planned timeline of six years to complete it and a budget of 7 million Australian dollars. And it actually took 16 years and cost $102 million. Wow. And so researchers have studied this problem and, and try to figure out solutions to it. And the solution Again, it's like, it's very sort of straightforward, but it's amazing how powerful it is. And it's simply to think about the last time you did a similar project and try to remember how long that took. And that's how you set the timeline for your new project. So the last time you wrote a 10 page term paper, it took you, you know, you thought it was going to take you two weeks. It took you six weeks. Okay. Well, if you have to budget your time plan for six weeks for that and just that little nudge, that little like bit of deliberate thinking is enough to help you plan effectively. It did help you vanquish this planning fallacy. Well, another thing you highlight too, they can help vanquish it is instead of planning left to right, plan right to left. What do you mean by that? Right. So, you know, this is when we, you have a situation where basically you, you don't get to set the deadline, but you, you have a mandatory deadline that you have to meet. 
In the book, I talk about two different organizations that have this happen to them regularly. One is, is Airbus, the aerospace company. They promise a jet to, you know, United Airlines. They have to deliver by that date or they're actually huge uh, penalties. And so the way they get around the planning fallacy, the way they make sure that they, they deliver on time and don't run over like the Sydney Opera House is they, they plan right to left. So they, they get out their calendar and they know the end date. And they work left on the calendar, you know, they work backwards in time to plan each stage. And, you know, again, sort of remembering how long did it take us to do this phase last time all the way back and then use that as their guide for for keeping on target. And then the other organization was I went and spent a few weeks with four family farms in Northern California and Southwestern Oregon that provide all the Easter lilies that are sold in the United States and Canada every year. Easter lily is a white lily and it really is only bought and sold for Easter for the Easter weekend. And so one of the farmers told me basically the day after Easter, this, this crop is useless. So they really have to meet that deadline. They have to have the lilies ready to, to ship in time for the holiday. And they did the same thing. They really carefully planned out their year and knew down to the day, like how long each stage of the process would take, what, you know, harvest. There's a period when it was, the bulbs are stored in a warehouse. There's a period when it goes into a greenhouse and they plant backwards from that. And that tells them basically when to plant, when to harvest. And that's how they meet their, their deadline year after year. Yeah, I picked up on that right to left planning when I was in law school, like getting ready for exams. Because, uh, you know, in law school, your entire grade for the semester depends on this one single exam you take. It's an essay exam with some multiple choice. And so what I did is, okay, I would at the beginning of the semester, I'd say, okay, the the test is this date. And then I would schedule out, okay, I'm going to do a practice test this, you know, this Saturday before, and then this Saturday before. And it was amazing how much that helped in me getting ready for those law school exams. Yeah, no, exactly. If you, if you work the other way, you know, you're much more likely to spill past the date that you actually need to get it done. Right. So another thing you, you argue is to think of deadlines as, you know, some, basically some deadlines, not all deadlines, but some deadlines as a soft open with teeth. Uh, what do you mean by that? Right. So, you know, deadlines, no matter what kind they are, are effective. But, you know, even if they're self-imposed, even if it's just you sitting and thinking to yourself, I'm going to get it done by this Friday at 5 p.m. or whatever, that helps. But the more, you know, what I call enforcement mechanisms you can work in, the better for you, the more likely it is you're actually going to get it done. And so a soft deadline with teeth is basically, it's a real deadline in that there are some consequences if you, if you miss it, but it is before the most important deadline, the one, the sort of do or die date. And so the case study I did for that is I went to Telluride Ski Resort in Colorado and watched how they open the mountain for the season. And Basically, that involves spinning up a lot of different uh, parts of the organization. You know, they have to hire lifties, uh, people to run the lifts. They have to hire ski instructors. And then most importantly, they have to cover the entire mountain in snow. You know, a lot of the early season is only possible because of artificial snowmaking. And the way that they have made sure that they open successfully is by setting a soft deadline with teeth. So... In the ski business, the first big weekend is the week between Christmas and New Year's. And that's the week that you have to have everything up and running full speed if you aren't you know, going to meet your revenue for the year. They have to have, that's, that's when, that's the busiest week of the, of the entire ski season. So that's the real deadline. That's the do or die date for Telluride. 
So they decided, okay, fine. Well, if we want to make sure that we're completely ready by that date, when, when should we open? And for the past, you know, more than a decade, they've opened on Thanksgiving and the way they thought it was like, that's a real deadline. There, there are going to be real people skiing on the mountain that day. If we announce that we're open, those are the teeth. But if we miss it or if the experience isn't a hundred percent or whatever, we still have several more weeks to, to dial things in and, and improve the resort before the do or die date of, of the Christmas holiday. How do you think just like regular people can implement this in their workaday life, like soft openings with teeth? Well, I mean, I, I, I did a version of this one for my book. Basically, I promised my agent and my wife that I would give them the book about a month before it was due to the publisher. And I, you know, that's not the strongest set of enforcement. Like my wife would probably forgive me if I missed my deadline, but that I had that deadline in mind and I I gave her something on that date. You know, it's like, please read this. And it helped keep me sort of on target for my real deadline, which is when I had to give it to my publisher. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. And now back to the show. So something you, you point out in the book, setting deadlines for some projects can be pretty straightforward. I'm thinking, you know, in your business, like the magazine business, as an editor, you had the, the final deadline was to print, right? That was the ultimate deadline. You had to get the, mm-hmm. ship out the, the thing. But before that, there's these other, other deadlines. There's the layout, there's the photography, and then there was the copy editing, and then the editing, and then the fact checking, and then you working with the writer, editing their stuff. So it's complicated, but it, it can be pretty linear. There are some tasks, however, some projects that aren't as linear, like they're complex. There's a lot of moving parts that are interacting in unpredictable ways. How do you set deadlines for those types of projects? Well, I think there's a few different strategies you can use. One is to use those interim deadlines to sort of, you know, okay, I'm planning right to left. Here's this huge project. I know I have to get these 10 things done and just set individual deadlines for each of them. The other thing, the other, I guess, bias to be aware aware of is something called the mere urgency effect, which is our tendency to prioritize whatever is due next, whatever you know, has the closest deadline. You know, that's fine if you're not overloaded, but if you are, it means you're going to start doing things that are unnecessary at the expense of those that are much more important. And so the the researchers that study this this effect talk about what's called outcome salience. So when you think about any part of this project, think about, okay, if I get this done, what is what is the outcome going to be? Like, how important is that towards the final end goal that I have? And the way that I sort of, the case study I attached to this bias that we have was I embedded in a presidential campaign. as a long shot presidential candidate for the Democratic primary uh, named John Delaney. Great guy. Let me sort of tag along with him in Iowa for for several days and running for president is extremely complicated. Like there's a million different things. You hire staff all over the country, but because he was this long shot candidate, he actually was very effective. I mean, he knew that his only chance was to sort of strip down his operation to the essentials. And so his goal was to get to the first debate. So you had to qualify for the first debate by getting 1% in three different polls uh, which doesn't sound hard, but actually, if you're sort of uh, someone that people don't know about, if you're not, you know, Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden, it can be difficult to even get one percent. And so he sort of set aside 
everything else that had to do with campaigning and focused only on this one goal, three polls, 1%. And the way he figured out how to do that was, you know, forget about, you know, going to other states in the country. I'm going to focus only on Iowa because that's where they do the most polling. And I'm going to go to every county in Iowa. And, and I bet you if I shake enough hands, I could probably get this 1% in three different polls in this one state. So he really, really prioritized what he was doing. And it worked. I mean, he, he got those three polls. He was on the first debate stage and that was his best shot. You know, if he had broken out during that debate, then he would have been a viable candidate I and mean, he would have made it farther than he did. But, you know, he did not do as well on the debate stage as he wanted to. And so he, he did not uh, make it too much farther. Well, so that's another benefit of deadlines right there. When you're facing a project that just seems overwhelming, a deadline for him, the deadline was, I got to get this many, this percentage of poll, like 1% poll by this deadline so I can get on the stage for the debate. It can add some clarity and give you some focus and you feel less overwhelmed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It, it, it was sort of like a filter to apply to any question that came across his desk. It's like, will this get me closer to that goal? And if the answer was no, then he would, you know, he would decline that invitation or whatever it was. So actually before the DNC, the Democratic National Committee announced that they were going to have this criteria for the, for the debate, the 1% criteria. He was a lot more all over the place. He was like, oh, yeah, he went to, you know, the South. He went to the West Coast. He went all over the place. But as soon as they announced that, he's like, ah, I'm in Iowa every day as much as I can be. And if he was being led astray by the mere urgency effect, he would have kept going to all the different places. He's like, well, that's what you're supposed to do. Like, I'm supposed to, they're having this thing in, in California now. I need to be there. Yeah. But instead, he just said, no, that's, it might be urgent, but it's not important. I got to focus on Iowa. That's my only, that's, that'll, that'll, that's the thing that's going to give me at least a shot. Exactly. Like he told me before that uh, those new debate rules were set up, his plan was to do a 50 state bus tour. And that's exactly the thing that you should not be doing if you're trying to get you know three Iowa polls. So he, he canceled that and focused on the, his ground game in Iowa. Okay. So I think the takeaway there, if you have an overwhelming project, figure out what's like the most, like the most important thing, the thing is going to get you closer to your goal and don't get sucked in doing that stuff that you think you're supposed to be doing because it seems like it's urgent or other people are doing it. Yeah. Just apply the question of, does this get me closer to my final goal uh, to basically every task that that you, you see? Another case study you looked at on organizations that use deadlines to make things happen is the theater, the world mm-hmm. of theater. And it's very similar as I was reading. Like This is just like opening a restaurant in a lot of ways. Yeah. You know, the, there's, there is that same sort of like deliberate practice phase. I mean, in theater, it's much more formalized. We know the language of it better because, you know, we've, everyone's heard of rehearsals and then dress rehearsals and then opening night and all that. But yeah, looking at theaters, I, I went to the opening of one play at the Public Theater in New York. I sort of saw how much they had built in of like a system, a very deliberate process to make sure that they hit all their marks, that things, you know, improved at the right pace so that when it was, you know, opening night, that the, the play would be ready to go on. And like you, you use this to, to explore this idea of using deadlines to improve what psychologists called sense-making or understanding. Just basically get a better grasp of what's going on in your project. Yeah, exactly. So you know, one of the, the right, this is going to sound sarcastic, but one of the joys of, of 
researching this book is I got to read all sorts of interesting publications. And I read one paper in a publication called Administrative Science Quarterly, not a magazine I would normally read. And it talked about this idea of sense-making and updating. So sense-making is, is simply pausing and creating a space and a deliberate time to sort of assess how things are going. So in the theater, that means at the end of every rehearsal, the director gives notes. He says, all right, today, you know, this scene was working. This scene was not. Here's what was wrong about it. That's, that's sense-making. That's, you know, looking at, at how your project is going and figuring out what's working and what's not. And then updating is simply what you do in response to that. It's like, okay, well, if this, the scene is acting is, is a little bit slow, then let's speed it up. Or if it, if it needs more energy, let's add more energy. So, and if, if you, in, in this article in administrative science quarterly, they talked about sense making and updating in the operating room and some surgeons regularly pause, even though it's, it's very tense and there's a lot of adrenaline flowing in an emergency situation. But the surgeons uh, who are able to pause and take stock of the situation, see what's going right with the patient, see what's going wrong, and then update their behavior accordingly are much more successful and have fewer deaths than those who sort of charge ahead and you know either just act purely on instinct the whole time or just don't stop and, and, and take stock of the situation regularly. Something that surprised me with the theater was how close to the deadline, the final deadline, opening night, they were updating things. Mm-hmm. In some cases, it would be like the night before. They like, I, I think, I think Hello Dolly. You give the example of Hello Dolly, right? Uh, <laughs> I think it's one of the all-time greatest, you know, best-selling Broadway musicals. And the like, the song that's everyone knows Hello Dolly for. It was like written like the week before, or just a few nights before the play went on. Yeah, I mean, that was a show that got updated continually throughout the whole process before it went to Broadway. And yeah, they wrote one of the most famous songs. Actually, it's probably the second most famous song from the, from Hello Dolly. The famous is, most famous is Hello Dolly, but there's a song called Before the Parade Passes By. And they wrote it the night before their performance. And at three in the morning, the composer was in his hotel room. Uh, Carol Channing, who was the, the actress was there too. And the director was there. And then, they wrote it on the spot or the composer wrote it on the spot and they performed it. And then they sort of knew they had a hit on their hands right there and, and danced around the room saying, that's it, that's it. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, I, so what does that have to do with sense making and updating? And it's like, they, they saw the audience like growing a little bit bored in the middle of the musical. And they said, okay, we need to solve this problem. And they stayed up all night solving it. And then, you know, the rest is history. It became a, you know, a total smash hit. And they wouldn't have figured it out if they didn't have those multiple deadlines, those multiple practice runs that had deadlines themselves. They wouldn't be able to. Yeah, they wouldn't be able to. Exactly. Well, out. I mean, you can imagine a scenario in which if theater doesn't didn't work the way that it does, you have a, a lousy performance, and if there wasn't this system in place where basically everyone sits around after it and gives notes and and talks about what went right and what went wrong, people would just say, like, "Oh, well, that was bad. Maybe tomorrow will be better," and they don't change anything. So because the theater has such a sort of codified system of sense-making, that's why, you know, that play was successful and why so many plays are successful. The the system creates the success. So one of my favorite parts of the book, you went undercover (laughs) uh, with Best Buy. You became an employee at Best Buy. This is sort of like, what's her name? The nickel and dime lady. 
Barbara. Yeah, Barbara Ehrenreich. Ehrenreich yeah. yes. A huge inspiration. Yeah. Right. So you did this. You, you got a job uh, at Best Buy, but it was the weeks before just Black Friday. What were you hoping to learn about deadlines by working for Best Buy during Black Friday? Well, so Black Friday was the deadline that I was interested in. It's like, oh, this is the biggest sales day of the year for for Best Buy and for a lot of retailers. And it's a pretty dramatic change in business as usual. So, you know, an average day at Best Buy, or at the, at the store I ended up working at, you know, sales are at one-tenth of what they are on Black Friday. So how do you how do you prepare for 10 times the number of customers, 10 times the number of revenue on a single day? And I love Barbara Ehrenreich and um, you know, she went to go work for like a Home Depot type store for her book. But at first I tried to go in through the front door. I like you know, called Best Buy and said, I want to come look at what you do to prepare. But they just, you know, they didn't really respond. And after about a year of waiting and asking, I was like, all right, well, I got to try a different way to, to report this story. And so I applied for a job. I applied to work at a store uh, out on Long Island in New York and I got the job. Thank goodness. And Join the staff. I joined the TV department, so or the home theater department, as we called it, and I learned to sell flat screen TVs and speakers, and and then got to watch what happened when Black Friday itself rolled around. I had about three weeks on the job before I, before I was thrown into the total chaos of or not total chaos, but the you know, the high stakes situation of uh, of Black Friday. And so, what did they do? I mean, what did their process look like you know, leading up to Black Friday to get ready for it? Do they have like? Do they have multiple deadlines? I mean, do they do the same sort of things we've been talking about? Yes, yeah, some of that. They have a big sort of dry run, so that it's a little bit like a soft deadline with kids. So they they they, they gather the whole staff. I think it was two weeks before Black Friday, and sort of run through how the day is going to work. But the most important thing they do is they sort of they they rebuild the store basically to handle to handle this big deadline. So normally, you know. The store is, you can freely walk from one part to the other, but to handle the crowds on Black Friday, they divide it into sections. So computers has its own checkout and its own sort of roped off area and TVs have their own area and appliances and mobile devices and gaming. And that's mainly for crowd control, like you know, to keep people flowing and the things that you see on like the news where people get trampled or the big crowd is crashing to the doors, like that's what they're trying to avoid. And that's one strategy they use to do that. The other thing they did, so there's a school of social science that talks about what's called interdependence. So it's like how much a store or any organization, how much the employees rely on each other to, to complete their tasks. So Best Buy normally is what's called, had pooled interdependence. So basically every employee was working for himself and, and or herself and their sales were tracked separately. On Black Friday and only for Black Friday, they change that system so that there are no track sales. Every employee relies on the other employees to complete a sale. So it's like basically impossible to sell a TV to someone all the way through. Uh, so you, you always, you have to hand it off from one employee to the next in order to complete the process. And so by, by increasing interdependence within the store, it becomes, the whole store becomes more efficient and they have to be efficient on that day or else you know, they're not going to get through the day. They're not going to serve every customer that wants to, wants to buy something. Uh, so how, how was working at Best Buy on Black Friday? Was it, was it exhausting? It was absolutely exhausting. You know, Best Buy controlled the process about as well as they could, but you're still dealing with thousands of people and it's, it's tough. It's a long shift. There's no downtime. 
you know, you basically are fighting off one customer to serve the other or, you know, having to say, please wait one minute again and again and again to everyone. But eventually we made our way all the way through. And also like Black Friday has sort of expanded its reach so that it takes over half of Thanksgiving too. So when I worked there, I, I started on Thanksgiving afternoon and then worked all the way through about 2 a.m. that night. And then the next day came in the morning and worked that full Black Friday. And yeah, by the end, I, uh, I was ready to, to tender my resignation. <laughs> and do they do like an after action report afterwards? So like, here's what went well, here's what went bad that we can change for next year. They don't do that with the regular employees, but the, okay. the management team does that. And then they definitely do it at that sort of uh, dry run meeting that comes right before Black Friday. They said, okay, last year, this is what happened last year. These were our numbers. And though that's one other thing that's worth mentioning about Best Buy and Black Friday is they set goals for themselves on how much they want to sell and they make them difficult and concrete. And there's a lot of evidence that the, you know, from this field called goal setting theory, that those are, those are crucial insights to have. You, you can't just say, we want to sell as many TVs as possible. You have to say like, no, we want to sell this number of TVs and then make that target, you know, a real number, but also a little bit of a reach. And that is a way to motivate your employees. It's a way to sort of meet the goal that you want to reach. Yeah, we see that with JFK and his moonshot, right? Choose to go to the moon in this decade. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think that when he said that, people were probably saying that's impossible. That like that, that's a very tight deadline, and yet because he set that deadline, I mean, they did it in July of 1969, right? So they they just got it in pretty much under the wire. And I think there's something about the audacity of that goal, how hard it was, that motivated NASA and everyone else to get it done. So you end the book talking about a type of deadline that I never heard of, but I'm intrigued by it. It's called stochastic deadlines. What are mm-hmm. stochastic deadlines? Stochastic is just like a fancy economist word for random. And so I was reading papers back to the deadline effect, the negative version of it. I was reading some economic papers and there was one that talked about the effect of a stochastic deadline on the deadline effect. So basically if you let's say you have a negotiation, if you impose a deadline that's triggered by an event that will happen at a random time, the deadline effect basically disappears. So what's an example of that? Well, so this economist talked about online auctions, like eBay type auctions. And if the deadline for the end of the auction was somewhat random, like if, if neither party could know exactly when it would end, they were more likely to find the price, the final agreed upon price quickly because they knew they couldn't wait to the last minute. And so, you know, what does that have to do with, with everyday life? Well, to, to talk about that, I, I went and embedded with unit of the Air Force called the 621st Contingency Response Wing. And they're basically the disaster preparedness gurus of, of the Air Force. They are the, the unit that you send in if there's a hurricane or if there's uh, an earthquake anywhere in the world. And basically, their job is first and foremost to arrive and set up an airfield so that relief supplies can start flying in. And so that's a hard job. That's, 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 um, very complicated. It could be dangerous. But when I was there, everyone, and I was there right before a hurricane hit, Hurricane Florence was, was making its way towards the East Coast. Everyone on base was totally relaxed, totally chill. And 
I eventually figured out, oh, these things are connected. This is a stochastic deadline. This is a random deadline. Like this, we never know when, when an earthquake is going to strike. You never know exactly when a, hur- a hurricane is going to develop. And so the solution that this, this unit of the Air Force hit upon was to just maintain a like very well defined system of preparedness so that they were ready to deploy it at any moment. And so I, that was it. I was witnessing, you know, the deadline effect being vanquished by, by this random deadline. Have you been able to implement stochastic or random deadlines in your own life? Yeah, well, I mean, I th- the, the lesson that I, that I took away from from that Air Force unit was basically like to try to remain in this high state of preparedness and productivity consistently. So it's not that, you know, deadlines in my own life have become random. It's just that if you apply all the lessons of meeting deadlines that I, that I learned from the book and consistently throughout your life, then you never feel stressed. You never feel crunched. You're always on top of things. And I mean, have you, has, have your deadline setting, has it gotten better since you wrote this book? I mean, you were, you were pretty good at it as an editor. You had to be, but has it gotten better? Yeah. You know, I think it was becoming a magazine editor that made me, made me good at it. I've gotten better by doing this research in college. I was as miserable as all the rest of us or almost, I was frequently working up into the last minute. I think it was working as an editor that really made me appreciate both like the power of the deadline and also um, the way you can use systems to force yourself, you know, to, to get things done on time. The biggest change for me from reading this book was that insight from the census is that like, oh, if you set a deadline uncomfortably close, if you shorten a deadline, you're more likely to finish it. And so that actually influenced my deadline for the book. I, I picked a date that felt just a little bit on the edge of, of my comfort when I was going to turn it in. And I think that helped me. It meant that I couldn't drag things out. It meant that I had to like plan the whole thing out very deliberately, you know, doing that right to left planning and writing a book is a big project, but I got it done on time. And that is actually fairly rare in the book world. So I was, I was glad that I had read the research that I had to, to make it possible. And what do you think if someone's listening to this podcast right now? What's like one thing that you think they can start implementing today where they'll see you know, an immediate result with like the, how they create or craft their deadlines. Well, if you're setting a deadline for yourself, you know, again, the first step is to make it a concrete deadline. Don't say as soon as possible, you know, pick a date, pick a time, you know, you could learn from the planning fallacy and think about the last time you did something that was similar and then sort of working in the opposite direction from that optimism, then push the deadline forward, you know, set it a little bit earlier than you think you might want to. And that is simply just, that's going to be that nudge that, that pushes you into action sooner rather than later. Well, Chris, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? Well, the book is available from bookstores everywhere or Amazon and Barnes and Noble. And uh, if they want to check out my website, there's more information there. That's uh, deadlineeffect.com. Fantastic. Well, Chris Cox, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Brett. Good to be with you. My guest today was Christopher Cox. He's the author of the book, The Deadline Effect. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about the book at the website, deadline-effect.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash deadline, where you find links to resources where we delve deeper into this topic.
Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay, reminding you to not only listen to the A1 Podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Mm-hmm.